just amazing that the whole week has gone by so fast and tomorrow we're cast out again out of the garden pedestrians pounding the pavements of life again <laughs> except for a few of you I'm not sure lucky ones or not but you get to stay here for three months or whatever your sentence is <laughs> Whether we're here, you know, inside the monastery-like retreat walls or outside, the walls are only a few feet high. The sky is infinite. It's all part of the same life, isn't it? And wherever we go, we can't really escape from ourselves. So, better face it <laughs> sooner or later. You know, we're always looking for a new relationship or something. But we might find every relationship sort of has the same pattern with different people because we are the common denominator in every relationship we have. So better face it sooner or later. So tonight what I'd like to talk about is integration, is dancing with life. Often when we have a retreat, an intensive, silent meditation retreat, for some period of time we get we have some experiences or we get concentrated and peaceful or we enjoy it or whatever happens maybe we hate it but it's an experience that we in some way or another are attached to even if we have a really hard time and hate it we think it's good for us like the hair shirts and the castor oil and self-flagellation. <laughs> so we'll do that tomorrow morning, just so you don't feel like you miss it. No. We do it to ourselves. We don't need it inflicted from outside, do we? So when we leave here, let's not be afraid that we're going to lose something. There is no leaving, really. If we are, if we, there is anything we're going to lose, we should lose it. It's extra, it's superficial. If we feel less concentrated next week, so be it. It's not concentration that counts. It's the wisdom, the insight, the deepening realization that we get, that we actualize an experience that makes a difference that stays with us. Everything else can go, must go, and should and will go. It will go. But don't be afraid to go out of here you're going to lose something that you can't live without this substance that we've been enjoying here so much this meditative equipoise this peace this simplicity we're always afraid of change of what's going to happen we resist change but change is the law there's no way to avoid that better come to terms with that the sooner the better but there's no hurry take your time when you're ready to you will come to terms with it even if we were doing a three year retreat as I have experienced I can tell you from my own experience that too comes to an end and you can't fly and you're out there pounding the pavements again like everybody else and the only thing you've got with you is not your merit badges and your medals 
from the Dharma Wars. <laughs> Nobody gives a hoot out there about that. <laughs> I assure you. All you've got with you is what you be, not what you've collected. We collect so much, but how much can we carry around with us? It's useless. And just like when it comes time to die, all we've got with us is what we be, not what we've collected. So, there's a little death. Every day is a little death. Every moment's a little death, getting us ready for that kind of passing. And we may be leaving this retreat. Seems like a little death, but it's just another bardo, another intermediate stage, another passage. And the path goes on with every step we make. If we want it to be a path, if we see it as a path, hold it as a path. So if we're afraid, what's going to happen? Or we wish this would last longer. We always wish it would last longer. We don't want to die either. We wish it would last longer. It's meaningless. It's just another thought. Or we wish it would end tonight. This is the other side of it. You know, that's just another thought. Are we ever really just with things as they are? You know, life can be very simple. The bell rings, you salivate <laughs> like a good dog. You go to the trough and lap it up and then look at the schedule to find out what your next orders are. <laughs> what could be simpler? It's so unstressful. But who here is that simple, including me? Never, never that simple. So as we go out in life, we might also start to notice the orders are clear. The script is almost written. All we have to do is follow it. There are certain things we have to do, we've chosen to do, we've made our, our script. It's very simple. And if we want to change it, we're the author, we can change it. But let's do it. Not wish it was different. I was reading... I don't know, you probably think I study Tibetan texts all day and night, but I was reading a book about leadership and management because we have a sangha and, you know, it takes the form of a foundation, like in, here at Gaia House. I don't know what it's called, a charity or something. What's it called here in England? Trust. A trust, right. Yeah, well, in America it's called a foundation. So I have to know about a few of those things, unfortunately. So I was reading about it, and it said, always do what your boss says. No, it's more subtle. You, you should always do what your boss wants. If you don't agree, get them to change what they want. <laughs> but if, if you can't get them to change what you want, you better do what they want. You follow? Otherwise, you're not going to be there very long in that job. So take it to the next level. It is scripted, but the few things we have to do we should do what is required. If we don't like the requirements, we can change them. That's fair enough. But what is required if we resist it, that is dissatisfactory. We're just self-inflicting pain on ourselves. We are the authors of the script, but the script is written. If you have a marriage to go back to or a job, you're free to quit it. But until you quit it, you better do what the boss tells you or you know what you've told yourself you're going to do until you change that script, that, those orders.
Otherwise, you're always out of sync. So I call this dancing with life. We can, dan- we can dance to any tune that the band plays. Any tune. We're not here to just become wallflowers and watch and stay aside so we don't, we don't sweat at all and get dirty. Dancing, dance with life when we go out of here. Stride fearlessly into the waves. Don't just wade on the side, just getting your toesies damp. <laughs> Stride fearlessly into the waves. That's what you came to the ocean for. You came. Nobody's telling you you have to. It's up to you. You can, it's, you can dance any, any style you want, you know. Just because the band is playing some kind of music doesn't mean you have to do the, I don't know what, dance. It's freestyle. Totally. So you decide, but don't pretend that it's somebody else's dance and you, you know, you're immune to it. It's your dance. You're not immune to it. Don't withhold. Why withhold? What are you saving yourself for? For later? For when you grow up? Saving your energy? Or for Prince Charming or Princess Charming? Maybe they'll drop down out of cloud nine and replace the toad or whoever (laughs) you're stuck with. (laughs) You know what I mean. Every morning I look in the mirror and I face with that, that feeling. And it's amusing. It's really amusing how one always wants things to be different. (laughs) No, I shouldn't shouldn't talk about myself. (laughs) It's getting too personal. (laughs) Dancing with life is about fearlessness and impeccability and integrity and wholeness and simplicity. Going straight forward not wobbling. As the Zen master said, you know, I said this before, excuse me for redundant repeating myself. Walk, run, doesn't matter, but don't wobble. And yet we wobble. You know, how many times do we go back to see if we left the stove on or whatever? We're anxious or neurotic about some, you know, compulsive details that we have to keep checking all the time. Maybe, yeah, but do you really love me? <laughs> Maybe you don't think that he doesn't really love me. We've only been together 20 years, but probably, you know, I still, he never really was honest yet. <laughs> you know, maybe another 20 years. And we're just fooling ourselves. It's so simple. This is it. This is it. This is what we're going to grow up to be. And how we live our lives is very revealing. To dovetail back to the original teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha said, you want to know what you are in your past lives? Look at how you are now. So, without even talking past lives, you want to know, how you, you know what you were doing before? Look how you are now. This is the result of before, the conditioning, the cause and effect, the karma. And moreover, perhaps more importantly, and Buddha said this, you want to know what you'll be later? Look what you're doing now. And how you're doing it.
not just external doing, but how you hold it or can think of it, how you react and <coughs> interpret it, how you, you are now, is very indicative of what's going to be later. So let's be very meticulous and careful, uh, not just careful, conscientious about this, otherwise we're being a little irresponsible. Responsibility isn't a big boulder uh, on our shoulders. It's freedom. It's growing up. It's being a responsible guardian of the whole world. And, you know, all this is given. Who here can claim to have produced it? We're the guardians. Any level you want to tap into this, your body, your health, your family, your community, the natural resources, you know, the oil or whatever it is today, you know, the rainforest, whatever, tomorrow. We are the guardians. Are we going to be responsible stewards and guardians of this gift? Or are we going to squander it, exploit it, treat it like some object separate from us that we, we can like get and kind of misuse or use as much as we can and stuff the ashes under the rug as if our children and grandchildren aren't going to feel the consequence. There's no rug where we can stuff, you know, the ashes or the, the used tissues or the radioactive waste or whatever level you want to look at it at. And there's no getting away with our karma either. Whether you, you think in Christian theistic terms, you know, God sees everything, you can't get away with it. Well, you see it in karmic terms. Every cause has an effect. Even if nobody's looking, karma operates. Still, it points in the same direction towards responsibility, conscientiousness, and being impeccable, and integrity, you know, honest. We seek a truth, but we lie. It's a contradiction in terms. We seek truth, but we lie. We steal. You know, we manipulate, cause dissension, whatever, take advantage, exploit. That's the opposite of truth. Love without truth is a lie. There's no such thing as love without truth. You think you're lying for somebody else's benefit? Telling those little white ones? Those little white lies? It's very difficult to find the lie that really has integrity. There's some fear or manipulation, some selfishness in there, usually, almost without exception. Love without truth is a lie. But truth without love is just as weak. It can, it can harm using the truth like a whip imposed on people. So I think it's very important here to really tune in conscientiously to what we're doing and take responsibility for this life, this way that we walk, this gift we've been given. And enjoy our way also. We don't have to make this into some kind of moral crusade or grim chore always thinking about airy fairy things like enlightenment what about just having a decent life being happy being kind you know how does it translate all of this stuff we're doing to right here and now to where we live we wait online and you know maybe pick out all the tomatoes out of the salad you know it's just lettuce and tomatoes but we pick out all the tomatoes. 
or tomatoes, whatever you have here. <laughs> there may be 30 of us and there's 30 tomatoes, but we take two. You know what that's called? Right. <laughs> so just keep your eyes peeled. You just watch and you'll know. You'll see, learn a lot. It's very clear. Let's not fool ourselves. I think we're getting away with something. Or there's a shortcut. Or the truth is up here and not here. And let's dance with life and take this that we're doing here out in the streets where life is actually lived. Of course, this is life too. But this is just a test tube. This is just a greenhouse, a hothouse. You know, only precious or foreign, not foreign, what do you call them? Rare f- tropical flowers live, have to live in the hothouse, like orchids and things. Most of us are not going to live in a monastery hothouse, like rare tropical flowers. We're like the grass spreading over the planet. We have to live in all conditions and flourish there. And we can also. We don't have to be afraid of that. Let's find the way how. And not dream about our next retreat only. Or wait until we sit on our meditation cushions at home Sunday morning. You know, it's very good to have a regular formal practice at home. A place to sit, a corner or a room or you know, somebody to sit with or a group or whatever helps support a formal, regular practice. But that's only half an hour, one hour, two hours a day. What about the rest of the day? That's where the spiritual practice really has to happen. Can we see the spirit moving in everyone and everything? Or only in our one hour in the morning in our precious meditation room? You think God is only in the church? on Sunday? Can we see the light, the Buddha shining from everyone? That would be real integration and engaged Buddhism. Not just trying to tell people about Buddhism, missionaryize and proselytize them. So in, in Dzogchen and the Vajrayana we call this sacred outlook or pure perception, seeing everyone as a Buddha seeing everything as like the Buddha field, Pat Nirvana, whatever. That includes shit, war, you know, all the evils and all. Seeing that too has its place. We can do everything we can to alleviate suffering, but recognizing that it's part, that the shadows too are part of the light of the whole mandala, the entire holograph. There's a lot of peace in that. Then we don't become enraged Buddhists instead of engaged <laughs> Buddhists. You know, enraged Buddhists who kill for peace. <laughs> so I feel it's very important to dance with life and not to forget also that whatever comes, it's not necessarily limiting us to how we play with it, whether we're dancing or however you want to call it however you want to look at it. It doesn't necessarily limit us. It's how we take it. It's what we make of it that makes all the difference. That's why it says in the Lankavatara Sutra, things are not what they seem to be, nor are they otherwise. What one makes of it makes all the difference. We are not what we think we are. 
So whether you say everything's a projection of your mind or whatever speculative philosophy you try to subscribe to, that's extra. If you really live conscientiously and honestly and look in the mirror every day and every moment, not just at your own face, but the mirror that everything provides, you find everything is enlightening, illumining, and illumined. Not just beautiful things, not just spiritual things, but everything. Dogs as well as Buddhas. The Zen master, Dogjin Zenji, he said, to, to learn the way is to learn the self, to learn about the self. To learn about the self is to forget, to transcend the self. That's easy. The third part is the real clinker. To forget, to transcend the self is to be enlightened by all things. That would be dancing with life, integration, enlightened by all things. Not just enlightened by Dharma teachings and depressed by the six o'clock news. <laughs> that also has its teaching, you know. Not just enlightened by wise guys and girls, you know, who teach things like Dharma and depressed by fools. We can learn even more from fools how not to be. We can learn from the wise how to be. We can learn from fools how not to be. Everything is illuminating and enlightening. So let's not be afraid to enter freely into everything. That'll be engaged, beyond engaged Buddhism. Forget about Buddhism. That'll be true engagement, dancing with life, and not just being a dancer, but being the dance itself. So that's all I wanted to say about that, because I'd like to leave time for questions. I know there have been a lot of them coming, but more practically speaking, if you want to take the practice home and practice in life, it's always advised, and I find very useful too, to have a place to do it every morning or at least once a day or twice a day in your home or even if you're homeless in your car, in your caravan, under a tree you know, there's no excuse I was homeless for many years there's always a good place to do it the yogis in the East, they do it in the, in the um, graveyard or wherever they ha- can do it, the train stations so I advise usually that you find a time and a place in the day. Having a regular place helps. It's like having a desk. When you sit down, all of your stuff is there. You can just do it. You balance your checkbook, you write your letters, you make your phone calls, and it's all there. You don't have to go around the whole house looking for all the bits and pieces every time. You know, you have your meditation cushion. I don't know if you have an altar or a flower or a candle. I don't care what. Or a window or a garden. But your place a sacred place, create a little space, even if you don't have your own room, for meditation room. Make a little place, and make a little place in the day also. Don't just wait when you don't have anything else to do. There's always something happening. Actions never cease. If you have a regular time and place, it's very helpful, like first thing in the morning is my time. It doesn't matter what time it is, but as soon as I get up, I wake up a little, shoot up my caffeine, (laughs) and then 
dive into meditation, dive into oblivion, (laughs) the first thing in the morning. And last thing at night or dusk or sometime at night is also a good time. But to see about making your time and place, that would be very helpful. I know it's hard, many say, you know, if you leave a retreat, you have a lot of good intentions. It's like New Year's resolutions, but it's hard. But we can do it if we're motivated and if we are skillful and we want to. And also, if you, you know, have friends or kindred spirit around, you could be part of a sangha, whether or not you join a group, but maybe go once a week or twice a week to some sitting group, it could be very helpful. Would hear a teacher, you know. I'm not the kind of person that says, don't go to any other teachers. I say, do it with everyone. Go to every teacher that's interesting. Just sniff around if you're interested. That's what I did, and I found it very helpful. And then you start to learn more how to pick and choose. The, the Sangha, the community of kindred spirits, is very supportive. So even if you feel isolated where you are, and there's no Sangha for you to go to that meditates every Tuesday night or whatever it is, you can also make your own, even just you know yourself or with one other friend. Have your own little sitting group or sangha or whatever. But make it a functional one, not a dysfun- one more dysfunctional family, please. And moreover, carry this practice into daily life by finding many short moments to just take a sky breath and drop everything and go, don't wait for that precious half hour, hour in the morning. Perforate the solidity of the day with the fresh air of these moments. Anytime. Like the, I like the Muslims. Five times a day they stop whatever they're doing, you know, trying to sell you fake ancient rugs or whatever they're doing. <laughs> and they get out their fake ancient prayer rugs. And they turn it towards Jerusalem. They think it's Mecca, but we know. And they do their practice. I wish we could do that five times a day. Five times a day. Not just wait for that hour in the morning and maybe we make it, maybe we don't. You know, about five times a day, just do it for a moment or a minute. Wherever you are. You don't have to be so ostentatious with the prayer rug and everything. The Dzogchen is very integrative, eyes open and everything natural. I mean, if you stopped at a red light, you know, you just go, <laughs> shout pet, hunt the horn or something. <laughs> and, you know, hopefully there won't be a policeman next to you when you do it. And this whole week will be there in that moment. You'll laugh a little bit, I guarantee it. Get a lot of very holy blessings from that moment of laughter. Guarantee it. But why only five times a day? Why not 10 or 20? You know, like Thich Nhat Hanh says, whenever you hear a bell, you, you stop for a moment. That's a great practice. When the doorbell or the phone rings, before you rush to see if you won the lottery, just stop for a moment. Total awareness. Nothing to do. Just stop, breathe, smile, you know, relax, aware. Then start again. Go to see if you won the lottery or whatever. When the phone rings, maybe let it ring an extra few times while you just relax. 
rather than just grabbing it saying, what now? <laughs> and maybe let it ring an extra time while you do your, your beautiful mindful practice or whatever. One can really enliven the whole day like that and, and, and integrate spiritual practice with the whole day, not just waiting for a meditation session or next weekend when you have time. There's always, there's never time. I can say there's always time. There is never time. There's no such thing as time. There's never time unless you create it and make it to do this. There's no, not enough time. There is never time unless you make it. You know, you can always get up a little earlier if you don't have time in the morning. Or whatever it takes. Or stop on the way at a garden and sit down and do it on the bench in the garden. Or at lunchtime, even if you work in the city, in, in concrete canyons. There's always a bench or a garden or a fake waterfall or something there that's beautiful. Or sit on a traffic island right in the middle of the traffic, zooming both ways, and check out awareness in the midst of all that. It's very interesting. Don't be square. You don't have to find a Zen garden in the museum to do it. There's a great traffic island in the middle of Broadway in New York. And if you, you sit there, you, it's really illuminating. You feel the energy. And you learn a lot about yourself, because that's ourselves, that energy, you know? It's not the traffic. I got involved once, I don't know why, with some kind of Broadway play. So at lunchtime, there was really nowhere to get away from the continuous egotism and, and social climbing and power lunches. So I found, <clears throat> I used to take this director's chair, which is a very foldable canvas kind of chair. It said director on the back. And I took it and I put it in the traffic aisle in the middle of Broadway where nobody would find me. And I used to sit there and eat my lunch for 45 minutes. It was great. The cars are going, <laughs> and all moreover, you know, you just knew one of them was going to be a drunk and just like kill you. Come right up on <laughs> on the island, jump the curb, and just kill you. But it didn't happen yet. But it's a great place to meditate and to be. You know, I didn't make a big deal out of meditating, but I could really be alone there and feel all kinds of, you know, it's like what was going on with me in that moment with the fear and the energy and the cars and everybody rushing everywhere and I mean it was really and there were little flowers growing you know life was going on even on that traffic island irregardless of all the hunking cabbies and every crazy thing you know black dudes with roller skates coming down the street half naked with big earphones on you know and cabbies hunking at them and giving them the finger and you know every kind of thing and it, it was really one of the best meditation places I ever found. And it reminded me of the yogi. You know, in India, the yogis would go to the graveyards to meditate. It was like that. But here, if you go to a graveyard, it's a beautiful, peaceful place. That's not the point. It doesn't do anything to you. It doesn't stir anything up. So let's not be too square. And again, just come back to this, try to pretend I'm on the theme tonight. I think this is dancing with life. What better place to dance than Broadway? <laughs> so, 
that's why the yogis and yogis went to the chi- the child grounds, a terrifying place with bits of corpses being eaten by, chi- you know, um, hyenas and vultures, and you know whatever ghosts or whatever they're afraid of. Would stir things up, then you get a chance to work with that. That's the path. Working with whatever you've got, whatever present, whatever material presents itself when within you. That's the path. There's no other path. And it's all going to come up anyway, so I might as well help it come up. Turn up the volume a little. You know, we've turned down the volume a lot this week. We've been very quiet and nice to each other. Everybody's really tried to be nice, you know, even, even nicer than the usual, if that's possible. We're, tomorrow we're going to go out, you know, things start to speed up, the volume gets turned up. But not be afraid of that. Think about the traffic aisle in the middle of Broadway. You know, nothing is daunting to me anyway. Now, I feel like airports are like gardens. They're so quiet. Everything's so easy <laughs> compared to some of those graveyards and Broadway, as I was saying, and you know, some of my life in India in the third world. And we really do live a very privileged, very miraculous way. Let's not overlook it. It's a gift. Let's not squander it. Gifts are meant to be used and shared not squandered and exploited and denied. Our life, you know, our youth, our leisure. A lot of leisure here. And not everybody can get away for a week or three months or whatever. Well, like me, their whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Not really. But you know what I mean. Let's appreciate this precious opportunity that we have as a gift. Gratefulness is a large part of the way. So as I said in the beginning, thank you all, not just the managers and cooks and founding teachers of Gaia House and everything, but all of you yogis (coughs) and yoginis, you British Buddhas and bodhisattvas and angels for doing this. This is Sangha activity. It's a joy to awaken together and let's take it out in the streets tomorrow not just raise our hands in prayer, raise our whole bodies and minds and hearts into this way, which includes all, it's for the benefit of all. <coughs> so again, just to reiterate, daily practice, morning or night, and break, cutting through every once in a while in the day like the good old Muslims, and third, pure perception, sacred outlook, seeing everybody as that, and seeing the spirit and the light shining in everybody and everything. Pure perception, sacred outlook, as we call it in the Vajrayana. And Dzogchen, seeing, well, recognizing all beings as Buddhas, and cherishing them and all life, and even your own. Even your own. Don't overlook that. So, thank you. Dance on. Any questions or anything we need to talk about tonight? Please feel free. This is your last chance. Yes? One was um, about impeccability, which is uh, a word we use at the beginning of this week and use it again at this time. I don't feel for that word, but um, I'd appreciate a bit of a more expanded definition of it. 
It's not a word that I would like to define. But I think you know what it is. I think you know what it is, and you know when you're not. That's why it's a good word that I like to use. Of course, it's integrity and honesty and doing your best. And excuse me, but it also has a feeling I think of excuse me, like the Bodhisattva courage or the never giving upness. You know, and doing it thoroughly and then letting go. Whatever happens, happens. Bao says, you know, really giving it your all and the best you can, but conscientiously also, and very straightforwardly, not crookedly. And it's something you, you know you can work on yourself. It's not really definable. like a pseudopod of Rigpa, a false appendage, it's just kind of emanate, an emanation, activity, nurturance, protection. It's like a form of emptiness. You know, your mind is empty, but look at all the, you know, I mean, our nature is sort of empty, meaning open. But look at all that comes out of it. So that's the relation between shunyata and emptiness and form. form. So Tara is just a personification of that kind of creative display or those pseudopods, you know, those appendages just responding impeccably, like compassion, sometimes called, in terms of Buddha activity, there's Dharmakaya, which is formless, absolute truth. There's Sambhogakaya, which is energy, truth manifesting as energy, emptiness manifesting as energy. And then there's Nomanakaya, which is embodiment, truth embodied as whatever. So it's like the energy, yeah, it's the Sunyata manifests as energy, as whatever is helpful, as whatever is needed. You know, compassion is responsiveness. Appropriate responsiveness. Tara Ravalokiteshwara is responsiveness. Without being moved from emptiness or beyond separation, kind of responding appropriately. It's like a mirror reflects whatever comes in front of it. Yeah? Martin? I have a question taken from your favourite poem, which is dedicated to you by your teacher. There's a line in here that I don't understand, and he's talking about regarding the correct meditation from this meaning, starting point of the practice is phrase, and the second line, the ground of the practice is the four mind changes. Yeah, that's Tibetan lingo. What does the four mind changes? <laughs> Meditating on death and impermanence, that's one. It's Tibetan lingo. In the preliminary practices of the Vajrayana, you, you contemplate four subjects that help turn you away from samsara or conditioned existence, right. materialism, contemplating death and impermanence, 
contemplating the precious opportunity we have here, the leisure and endowments and health that we have here in meeting and practicing the Dharma. That's second, so we don't waste our time. Third, contemplating karma, cause and effect, conditioning and responsibility. And fourth, contemplating suffering, a dissatisfactoriness and the defects of samsaric conditioned existence. Those are four mind changes. These are four contemplations that kind of <coughs> turn us away from materialism or something like that. Turn us away from samsara, worldliness, and bring about some feeling of world weariness, renunciation, or higher aspirations. Um, you can translate them, but they're not really tra- translatable. They're not really used for the meaning. Like, do you know what Om means? Yeah. Okay, so Om, we don't have to try to translate. No. Good. <laughs> Tade is Tara's name, Tada. Om Tade, Tu Tade. I don't know what Tu means, because I don't care. What does Tu mean, do you know? Yeah, it doesn't matter. You see, you can chant these all day, but you don't think about what it means. Om Tade Tu Tade means like really Tara or something. Om Tade Tu Tade Tudie. The Ye is like a kind of invocation or exhortation. Om Tade Tu Tade Tudie. Swaha. And Swaha is like the other end of Om. It's kind of like so be it or amen. It's a prayer full kind of affirmation. So we don't ch- chant them for the meaning really. No. It's just like chanting Tara's name or something like that. The same with Gate, but I'll translate the Gate one. It's it's very understandable, like the whole Heart Sutra. Om, you understand Om, so we don't bother with that, fortunately. Om Gate. Gate means beyond, transcendent, inconceivable. So Om Gate, Gate, so it's like double chocolate, you know, it's like double gate. Om gate, gate, pada gate. Pada means like summum bonus, like totally, <laughs> totally beyond. So it's, um, it's beyond, beyond, totally beyond. Om gate, gate, pada gate. Pada sum gate. Sama means perfect or complete. So pada sum gate means perfectly, completely, transcendently beyond. <laughs> Om gate gate paragate parasam gate perfectly completely totally beyond like beyond even the beyond parasam gate bodhi bodhi is the root of Buddha bodhisattva bodhi it means awakening enlightenment flowering bodhi awakening and swaha far out hallelujah amazing so now you know what the mantra means yeah. So has a Tibetan pronunciation. So somebody says Soha or Swaha. It's the same word exactly. These mantras are usually in Sanskrit because that's, you know, Indian Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism came in Sanskrit. And the Tibetan, the Chinese, the Japanese all kind of tried to pronounce it. 
so it gets a little changed. And that's why they do Sanskrit people have asked about that and just in brief that's something that I've been trying to put together for people who have to study with me and my teachers since um, they're not I'm trying to find a western way to thoroughly train or be exposed to this path that I've been trained in without people going to be a monk or do a three year retreat somewhere so it's a training program integrated with western life having the various components that I find relevant and useful and important. And it includes doing retreats, working with the teacher, like seeing regular personal, you know, meetings or phone calls, accounts, you know, whatever, faxes, email, whatever. Um, a reading list, both published things and things you can't find very easily, and also tapes and videos. Um, yoga, kind of physical and energy and breath practices, coming to the one-month retreat that we have in the summer. Every summer we have a one-month Dzogchen retreat like this in upstate New York, in a good place where everybody has their own room, and it's on a hilltop, so we do outdoor sky gazing practice together, and I bring a Tibetan Lama to teach with me and things like that. It's the best thing we have to offer. If you're interested, that's on the schedule on the bulletin board next July 22nd. The next one. Um, doing personal work, like therapy, men's groups, women's groups, some kind of personal issue work, including you know, looking into right live, you're having a livelihood, relationships, and all the issues of our life that are so often bypassed when we enter into some esoteric discipline that we think we can avoid those issues through. Um, some form of service or sangha making or some kind of service in the community. And a few other things like that. So it's a kind of a curriculum of Dzogchen and Vajrayana, Mahayana training, studies, practice, retreats and an ongoing commitment to do that over a period of time. And I try to tailor-make it for each different person. So everybody doesn't have to do all the same thing. Some people do the preliminary practices, the nundro, and some don't, for example. Some do the yoga and energy work, or some ritual shamanic stuff, chanting and stuff, and some don't. Some study more, and some don't. But try to get the main, you know, things, the main events. Any other questions? Yes? I do understand that you moved from New York to Massachusetts. Yes. And um, this month-long summer retreat, in your experience, by what time is it booked? Like, any questions or something? Um, it depends. It depends. It's a big place, so we have a lot of room. One year we had 80 people, one year we had 60, one year 50. It depends. One year we did it for two months. 
But this year, July 22nd, it starts it's for four weeks. And I think as long as you book it before, you know, February or March, it'll be fine. But I do want to stress that the best thing we offer, and everybody gets their own room, and it's a great place to do this practice. So it's really, you know, we looked at 80 different retreat centers, and we rent this place because it's on a hilltop overlooking a big lake, and there's a lot of grounds and place to be alone, and it's a really good opportunity. And I bring a llama there, and we have a good time. <laughs> Dzogchen is more fun. <laughs> That's what I say. We sit. <laughs> Uh, yes, do you have a word for expatriates? Um, well, I've been away from expatriates. The expatriates. Well, I've been away from the States for over two and a half years. And, I mean, I went back for a short visit, but I sometimes bump into Americans and they say, um, actually there's more going on in America there is, than there is in Asia. <coughs> more, more what? Well, what you mean Dharma or what? The, what more are we talking research about? into the Dharma and more of the forefront of, of what's going on with practice. That's a quote, what they said, which may or may not be true. But just for someone personally, you, you're probably the first American teacher I've had in years. And it's just interesting to hear what's, you know, an American view on things again. And your language, I, I, can, I can see you talking to an American audience. Um, I'm just wondering whether my being away is um, is it a kind of an avoidance, or is it just because it really is cheaper to live in Asia? I mean, I couldn't even begin to afford to. Are you living in Asia? Well, I have been, and I will go back probably. You're not living here right now. You're just visiting. Well, I, I'm, no, I'm, I've been living at the barn now. Uh, but you think of yourself as living mostly in Asia? Is that what you're telling me? I see myself as as probably going back to Asia, probably then, instead of living in the States. Why you go there? Because it's cheaper to live? Well, you know, that's part of it, but also partly because um, it just it, it seemed to be a place of my spiritual awakening, and it just seems mm -hmm. to be a really fertile ground. But then sometimes I say, well, maybe I maybe I do need to go back to the States. But I don't really feel that drawing. But I'm, it just came up. I wondered if I'm just avoiding something. If you met any other people who just don't go back home. Sure. Where is home? Yeah, that's true. That's Where true. is your home? That's the thing. If you feel like you're away, then you must feel like that's home. No, I don't feel like I'm away. But if you feel like you're home here, then where is home? I mean, everybody in America came from somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> but... um. You know, I mean, it, it might be cheaper to live in Asia, but also it's harder to make money. So I don't know how your life works, but you know, you can also live in America and perfectly fine and have. I can't live in America for three hundred dollars a month. <laughs> well, you might make three hundred dollars an hour there. Oh, the thought of going no. back to work is just somehow um, right. very offensive. Yeah. <laughs> well. If you're in Asia, you can always be a memsa, but that's a little bit avoiding the facts of life. This has never bothered me. It just came up at this moment, just because. Yeah, well, that's as interesting. I said, you're, you're yeah. Just the first American teacher I've seen for a while. I guess I got a kind of a kick out of the jokes. Oh, I have heard well, to us, though, that you know, this summer. You know, when you asked about expatriates, 
the Dalai Lama is kind of an expatriate, and he his biography his autobiography has a marvelous title. I think it has a lot of love with me. Freedom in Exile. So in a way, we're all in exile from the garden or ourselves or whatever you want to call it. But there is freedom in exile. That's his autobiography. Is it ours? Okay, it I could think be. What, yeah, I think probably what what happened. On the other hand, we all need to want to go home and be home. We've addressed that in this practice also, not just wherever you were born or something. But to feel at home, but to be at home, be at home with ourselves, and you know not have that doubt or feel like we're avoiding or getting by. This is totally up to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, Americans always think that the newest and best thing is happening in California or in America. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what and I That's heard. a very American way of looking at things, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, American, you know, Buddhism is like emerging now. But whether that's an improvement or it's just, you know, how Americans do it, that's not clear. I think the issue that, really what the issue is, that I'm probably afraid that I will succumb to um, some of the old lifestyle and some of the patterns. Perhaps I feel like I haven't... You mean in America, mm-hmm. if you go back? Yeah, yeah. Well, don't go back, go forward. Right. I feel like I'm just looking, um, I've just seen seeing America like for the first time. That's a good place to be. I was never there before. Mm-hmm. I lived away for about 18 years, 10 years in Asia and 9 years in France in retreat. And now, you know, I'm an American and that's where I'd be and everybody speaks my language and it's very uh, natural. I wonder what I was avoiding. And the old patterns go with us anyway. But I'm not suggesting you go back to America. But living in Asia has its own ups and sides and downsides, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Do you find good Dharma teaching and Sangha life and you know what you like in Asia? Or you just go there for a dip and then you come back? No, I lived there for two and a half years straight. Before I came here, I came here actually to recover. <laughs> that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, it really is. So how long can you live there? Well, that's that's a good point. How long can you? Live there? I don't know. I don't have to decide. So it's okay. It was refreshing at one time though when I took my sabbatical and went back to my job, and discovered that the Dharma was just in the neighborhood. It, was, it just blew mm-hmm. me away. I thought, you know, one hour away was a Buddhist center. The Dharma is everywhere, yeah. but even more specifically, you know, there's a, a bar and a center on every corner. Mm-hmm. So, you, know, you choose. <laughs> <laughs> America the Buddhiful. <laughs> <laughs> and look what's happening in Devon, you know. There's this amazing amount of Dharma here. Can you say something about Tong Len uh, practice as a way of integrating this practice into Dharma? Well, Tong Len is a Tibetan word for um, giving and receiving, sending out. It's a way of eroding ego clinging and selfishness. You inhale all the negativity and darkness and 
you visualize you inhaling all the diseases and bad karma and conflict and everything and you you inhale it and you take it and dissolve it into the emptiness of your own nature and you kind of transmute it all into light and you give out you breathe out all the, the positivity that you offer you give away all of your merits and wisdom and peace and harmony and so it really reverses our tendency to always grasp and desire what we think we like and be averse or push away what we don't like. So we're doing just the opposite. We're inviting, we're bringing in all what we don't like and giving out all that we like. Yeah. So it's part of the Mahayana. It's called mind training, but that's a poor translation. It's more like attitude transformation. I mean, for a long time, I think I got it, I got it that wrong somehow because it kind of led to, a, you know, uh, accepting sort of abuse and, and things that were, were yeah. and not actually feeling very good about that either. Maybe you didn't dissolve it into the emptiness. Right. So you just put it into your liver or kidney or, right. or life or somewhere. Right. So, so it's very important to, yeah. like you actually make the prayer and you chant it, you think it, you visualize it, dissolving into the infinite emptiness of your own nature, your own mind, and breathing out the light and the blessings and the your wealth and giving everything away. It's a generosity practice, giving your body in service and your merits and your, you know, breathing. It, it's intense. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a very powerful, it really brings up all the fear and all the, you know, that's why I don't teach it in a public setting usually. Mm-hmm. May all the AIDS virus come upon me and dissolve into the emptiness of my own nature and may all the others have all of my immune cells. You try doing that sometimes, from cancer and conflict, and you know, and see what it brings up for you. That's we call a graveyard practice. Yeah, I mean, I thought that's. You really face the, your own fears, and also see how illusory they are. Right. Right. I mean, that's the important bit. Yeah. Right. So it combines the bodhisattva, the generosity, the uh, the altruism with the en- emptiness practices, you know, the compassion with the wisdom, the emptiness. That's very powerful. You can read about it in Sogyal Rinpoche's book. He just talks about it. It's a great way of healing, but of also of diminishing ego cherishing. Okay. Yes? Yeah? Oh, let me say one more thing about it, excuse me, just so we're talking English. I think of it basically as without, you know, even ha- you have to get into all the nitty-gritties of the disease and all those terrifying things to invite upon yourself. Just think of it as putting yourself, sometimes empathizing, or put yourself in the shoes of the others. That's something we can do in daily life. Really feel what they feel. It might change how you fight, squabble with them over the spoils in different situations. But you really see they're just like we are, and they want and need what we want and need. And then you're much more connected and gentle and empathetic with compassionate and selfish and aggressive. Yes, in the back? Yeah, I just wanted to follow up on that. Do, do, um, do you need specific instructions in order to do that practice? Yes, you do. But not what, what Definitely. You that? No. You should be careful with that practice. Because it, it, it can be a dimension of integration and aggressive. 
Yes, Ken Wilber also mentioned Dzogchen, which he doesn't know much about, but he wrote beautifully about for one page in that book. But this is a kind of practice where you can really, you know, it's dangerous. You know, it's it's intense. You might scare yourself. You might even make yourself sick. Who knows? And you have said that Dr. Rinpoche mentioned it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I have to really consider it carefully. It's adequate if you always all the other teachings in that book, including the Dzogchen view and other things. But just reading it, it's very difficult. I, I, you know, I can see what I'm because I asked a question about Dzogchen. practice of playing with emptiness, like visualizing. Yes. The Garuda thrives. Yeah. The sent the Garuda is a tantric symbol because the Garuda is a mythological bird like the phoenix. The Garuda thrives on poisonous snakes. Yeah. Non brown rice and miso soup. So it's a symbol of the Rigpa, the awareness that soars freely in the sky, the Garuda, powerful celestial hawk, and it eats the poison snakes. It's just like the Rigpa flourishes on the Kalashas. The more the more poisonous emotions, the more awareness blazes, the more firewood in the bonfire of awareness. That's the image. They're not trying to avoid the poisonous snakes of the emotions, but recognizing their nature and thriving on it, the more thoughts, the more awareness, the more energy, the more awareness, the more passion, the more compassion. It's like fuel for the flying, the yeah. poison is like turning to petrol. <laughs> yeah, or, or like using um, smallpox, what do you call it, whatever they are, as a as serum for vaccination. Or like the peacock, it's said in Indian mythology, the peacock eats the poisonous snakes and it just makes the tail feathers more bright. So it's a different approach than always trying to avoid the poisonous snakes. Any questions people haven't heard from? Uh, yes, uh, Gordon? Mr. Jack here about the, um, what Sure. We have special stamps for people in Wales. <laughs> you know, I come here once a year, you can come there once a year, and then we have other ways of relating, and you training and practicing, and also seeing other teachers, perhaps, if that's your bag. But this is, you know, practice a life journey, it just doesn't depend on seeing me a lot this year. That's why we're looking at it as a program where we can go thoroughly into I mean, I've been, I met Buddhism in 1968, 
and I tried to meditate and I couldn't really do it every day. I mean, I went to a weekend, but after that I couldn't really do it. I was in college and all that. But 1971, I went to India, and I started and I did a 10-day meditative pasana course, and I kind of got this idea. One, this is something that one did every day, and I sort of vowed to do it every day for an hour or two, morning and evening. And I've been doing it ever since. That's how it happened. So I have a lot of faith in the practice, not the label, not the theory not whose practice or what teacher, but actually staying with it for a few decades. That's all you need. If you think that's too long, I, I don't know what to say. There's no, there's no shortcuts. Good. So I'm sure that you, I have no doubt that you know what I'm talking about. And I will continue doing it as long as I'm alive because I love it and I know it works. And if I miss a day, I don't kill myself either. But it goes on, you know. Definitely, it goes on. Yes, Mary? You were saying about that you could use the bugs and you on other practices. Yes, it enhances every practice. No, you should never combine. You cannot do an hour with Pastana and then go skydiving a little bit. Yeah, you can. I wouldn't call that combining. Oh, no, right. You don't do the separate thing at the same time. No, if you understand the Dzogchen view, then it enhances anything you do. Like if you ring a bell in the Hanuman temple, the view reminds you that there's nobody ringing the bell to anybody. So that could be a Dzogchen practice. That might remind you. Or if you bow, look, I come in here and I bow. So you think I'm bowing to the, the chair here? <laughs> but bowing is a practice. It's a practice of reverence. And it makes me, reminds me what, you know, what is truly deserving of reverence or, you know, who's bowing to whom. So bowing is a practice, a very basic relative practice. But the view enhances that and brings it to a, quite a good level, I think. <coughs> That's how the view enhances whatever you do, including Vipassana, or, you know, whatever you do. Feeding a monk is a practice. But if you feed the monk, hoping your mother will see it, that's not a very high spiritual practice. That's called pleasing your mother. Right? But if you feed the monk as if you're making offerings to the Buddha, or you're sharing the Buddha's food with the Buddha, that's a different kind of practice. So it depends, that's called your view, your outlook. It's not like an opinion or a philosophy. It's sort of where you're coming from, what level you're at. So I don't know what kind of vipassana you do, but if you're practicing vipassana and you're really, you know, just present, that's like the view. But if you're practicing it so that, I don't know, something's going to happen, then that's a different kind of way of practicing. You know what I mean? like maybe every single stop appearing. If you're practicing to make things stop arising, that's a different view. That's a different direction. That's not open, total, choiceless awareness. Pristine awareness.
everything perfect already because we always have this want to telling it, you know, and that feeling, thought, come, why am I thinking and so stupid mm-hmm. things, but that the view is that everything is all right. Mm-hmm. Just have to watch it. Yeah. Right. So in that way, that view can really enhance anything you do, not just vipassana, but chopping vegetables or whatever you do, you know, talking to your family. It's not just the thoughts are okay, just watch it, but everything is just happening. You can just watch it, including the watching is just happening. You can just watch it, you know. There's a lot of levels to this. Not watching is also okay. You can just notice that. You know, distraction is also part of it. It's profound. It's very wide. That's why I say I don't think of it as combining. You know what I'm saying? Yes, John? You just said, in, well, I read in that interview that was on the board, that, uh, that you didn't really recommend Dogchen <coughs> to beginners. I'm not sure I exactly no. said that, but like yeah. It's it's usually said that it's not for beginners. Not by me, but that's a tradition. That it's an advanced practice, that it's formless, unstructured, dangerous, difficult, you know, esoteric, secret. (laughs) I think it is formless, unstructured, dangerous. You know, yeah. I don't think it's so difficult for you know those who resonate with it, um, and so on. It's not secret. It was not intended to be secret. I think it's doable. It's a teaching for our time. Many of my teachers think so, and I think so, and it seems to work. So I feel good about it, and I think it really does help you. It's like the heart of Buddhist practice, and especially of Tibetan Buddhism. So when you understand this kind of thing, then all the practices make sense. <coughs> Otherwise, it's an impenetrable maze. You don't know where you are in the midst of all the, the thousands of different practices, theories, teachings, this, that, visualizations. You know, it's very confusing. Just like mindfulness. If you understand mindfulness, then you can understand Theravada Buddhism. Just going to the East and seeing people praying for sons to the Golden Buddha in Thailand, it's very difficult for you to understand what it's Theravada Buddhism for. For sons? I mean, they're praying for sons. So, this is a mystic heart of the teachings. I think, you know, it's easy to say only mystics can understand mysticism, but... You know, a lot of people have taken LSD in my generation. We're all mystics. <laughs> That's my opinion. <laughs> what do you think? Is it doable? You've been doing it this week, or you've been sitting and, and writing plays or something? Yeah, a little above. Yeah, it's good. A, a little will go a long way. When I first started teaching, I wondered if this was, you know, going to be something we could really do, or in the West, or we really had to go through 
the Tibetan tradition, you know, 100,000 prostrations and another 100,000 mantras and visualize yourself as a deity for six months and a lot of other things. And uh, then I started to notice we do these kind of, you know, retreats and workshops and even one-day things. And people don't usually say, I can't do this, I'd rather count my breath. I mean, this really resonates with our deepest understanding. I, I think it does. There's a time for Dzogchen, and people today were sophisticated and psychologically astute, and so on. We're not illiterate nomads, you know, living on the steppes. Any other questions? Otherwise, we're going to end today for today. And please look at the board for tomorrow's schedule. We're going to break silence at 7.30 at breakfast and whatever else the manager said. But the schedule's on the board. Yes, did you, Yvonne? Yeah. Are you Yvonne? Um, no, Philip. Philip, okay. You just um, said something about um, distraction, which I didn't understand. I was being distracted. I said <laughs> distraction was also part of it. She was saying how you just watch everything. So I said, yeah, distraction too. But when you're watching it, is it just, is it still distraction? No. What? Well, you know, really there's no such thing as distraction. Mm. It's just a label. Distraction from what? So you're holding on to some what? But we, we know what we're talking about when you're distracted, you're, you know, you're mindless, you slam the car door on your finger or whatever. So, it's just like you can say when you're tired, when you're meditating, you become dull, you should jump up and wash your face and do something different. But you could also say, why don't you just you know, be aware within the tiredness? You know, there's also there's a possibility there of actually integrating distraction or the tiredness, the dullness as part of the path, and then there is awareness functioning, even in the dullness. So in a way, that's more direct. It's a little harder, but you know, one could do that. So even with distraction, <coughs> and you're right then it's not distraction mm. that's what confused me in my contradiction yeah, it, is a, it is a paradox but the truth is there's no such thing as distraction mm-hmm. distraction from what? I mean what are we trying to hold on to that we're distracted from? if you're doing one pointedness meditation then everything is a distraction but that's a very you know, limited and particular technique if you're doing life, what is a distraction from life? If you're doing, you know, if you're a spiritual being, what is a distraction? If you're a lover of God, then what is not part of that? That's why, you know, that's why it's a gateless gate. The gate is infinitely wide. There's no outside and inside the gate. The gate is infinitely wide and there's no wall. There's no inside and out. That's why it's hard to get in. If you're thinking about getting in, it's very hard to get in through the gateless gate. There's no in and out. But from outside, you know, it looks like there's inside and out. But from inside, there's no walls, there's no out. So there's a paradox to the finite mind, but not that all levels are being. One more question on something you said last night about 
um, some gurus that you have to watch out for. You said there, there's some uh, people that would lead you astray. And Did I say that? I can't remember how you said that. They said Unenlightened not. gurus are following anybody's whatever voices you hear or whatever. No, it wasn't about no. the voices. I think it was about real teaching. Yeah. Still will bring you grief. Oh yeah. Well, you're not really asking me a question. Well, I well I am because. What's um, the question? I think that sometimes with <coughs> with one's critical nature, and especially with this whole concept of a guru, which is it's hard for me as a Westerner to come to terms with. And really had to work at it in India. Um, and then the idea is that there's some that are bringing you to grief and you say, well, is it my critical nature that there's something wrong with this person or is there really a problem with this person? Um, you actually know gurus, in, in you've met gurus or so-called gurus in your travels that have led people astray, is that what you're saying? Yeah, all the time. Sure. Doesn't mean they haven't helped people also, but, you know, it's not just because they're gurus that they're perfect. That's all I'm saying. Nothing is perfect. Mm. That's the other side. <laughs> People aren't perfect. Relationships aren't perfect. Only the great perfection is perfect. Exactly, that's you know? what I'm just So everything on this side is imperfect. So, you know, there's a lot of projection, there's a lot of transference, to talk psychological terms. There's a lot of, you know, imagination with gurus. You know, we give away our power to gurus. That could be a little disempowering. Not just our power, also other things. So a lot, you know. I was, I don't know why I said that, but I, I stand behind that. There are many gurus who are great enlightened beings, and there are many who aren't. I mean, Dalai Lama himself said you should spy. He said it's it's fine to go anywhere and receive instruction and listen to any teacher and just take it as information. But if you're thinking of signing on as their disciple, you know, having a guru-disciple relationship, then spy on them for many years before you sign. Because a guru-disciple relationship is not just like having a fifth-grade teacher. At the end of the year, you go, you know, or, or a, an instructor who teaches you how to drive a car. You're signing your life away in the guru-disciple relationship. And you're supposed to do what the guru says. I mean, this is the Asian model anyway. So Dalai Lama himself says, spy on the guru, and if your critical mind thinks that there's something wrong there, you know, listen to it. So again, is, is someone who's a Westerner going to lose something in this, the fact that it is so difficult, number one, to surrender anyway, and then number two, because of the critical voice, we're never going to find someone that's going to fit our so-called image of the imperfect perfect. And well, it's beyond images. You might know somebody's impeccable and trust them. And you're right, it's complicated with surrender and skepticism and ego. It's very tricky. But maybe everybody doesn't have to surrender to a guru. Maybe the teaching can be your guru or the truth of the inner guru can be your guru. You know. But that is tricky, yeah. If surrender is impossible for you, then Maybe it's worth making the mistake of surrendering to the wrong person. Just don't make an irreparable, you know, surrender. <laughs> you know. But the whole guru, guru discipleship is fraught with 
pitfall. Everybody knows that. But you know, the uh, the critical mind, the questioning mind, also has some pitfalls, but also has some integrity, as does the guru-disciple relationship. They both have some pitfalls and some integrity. So, you know, don't just put whoever comes along at, on a pedestal. And then when the person you're karmically most has most affinity for, you know, person or teacher or you know, it might not be a person, it might be Christ or Tara or some I don't know, ascendant master of the White Lodge, you know. Whatever. That speaks to your heart. The heart knows. Surrender is a very good path, but it's not the only path. There's also the path of jnana yoga, you know, knowing not just devotion and surrender. So I found surrender and devotion very important and helpful to me. Any other questions? Otherwise we should close up for the night. Yes? Sure. What does dead mean? So, for example, uh, if I've taken refuges with a teacher, um, then uh, the, that that um, influence could still be yeah. uh, What if your teacher is Sogyal Rinpoche and he died yesterday? Would you even would that make a difference today? You wouldn't even know it. Of course, it's an influence. I don't think, feel like my teachers ever died because they're in my life. It's just like Karmapa is still sitting over there and seek him. I don't know if he's alive or dead. That's how foolish I am. Definitely in my life, has a big influence. You know, for those for those who let Jesus into their life, is he dead? What does dead mean? With a you know a principle like that, it's the principle really that we're working with, the Guru principle, not the body. I guess I'm just wondering whether taking messages is strong enough a, a link with the no, it's not. Devo- your devotion is the link, not the formal formality you underwent. So that, so that my devotion, even though I might have only met the teacher once, might have, might have Even if you never met the teacher, mm-hmm. even if you just heard his or her name, or I don't know what, to her picture or whatever, it might be a real connection. Because it's the principle, it's a connection. principle and your connection to it. Just like if you mispronounce the Sanskrit mantras, they still work. It's chanting if it makes a difference, not, you know, not the words of the law, but the spirit of it. So uh, let's end here, and you you all bell ringers, could you ring the bell in about 15 minutes for a 20-minute sitting? Who's ringing the bell tonight? You are? So... We'll have a little bit of a late 20-minute sitting. Is that okay for you? Thank you. Good night. See you tomorrow morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.